Well, today we're going to do something within our growth series. We're going to take a step back. The last couple of weeks we have been asking ourselves this question, how do Christians grow? How do we become more like Christ? And we've entitled the series, Grow, A Journey Towards Christlikeness, because we we have this sense that there's more to life than just coming to church and you know, singing a few songs, clapping your hands, you know, doing your thing, listening to a sermon, and then going out and, and taking a nap on Sunday. There's more to being a Christian to that. And so we started off a couple of weeks ago looking at this passage of Scripture in John 15 where Jesus says there's a mandate. You, you must be growing. And we looked at that, and then last week we looked at repentance. And this week we were going to look at a few of the more tangible things about how we grow, and we're going to do that over the coming weeks. But I felt like I needed to back up and to sort of recalibrate ourselves about the confidence that we should have as Christians in the gospel and what Christ has done for us. That we, here's my, if you could, if you had to wake me up at three o'clock in the morning last night, which is not an unusual occurrence in our house with the little people that live with us that can't seem to make it through the night, and you would have said, What is the, what is the sermon about tomorrow morning? And, and I, at that moment, hopefully I'd have woken up and, and not hit you. And I would have said that, that what we're going to talk about today is the confidence. The confidence. In fact, I'll even use this word, the inevitability. The, the truth and the power of the grace of the gospel and the work of Christ on the cross and the infilling of the Holy Spirit produces in the life of the Christian. Because I think what happens is some of us, you know, we've been Christians for a while and we're kind of like, oh, yeah, I got to grow. I feel pretty sorry about where I am with God. And there's this kind of this guilt. And so we spend a lot of our time trying to do like do good moral things to make ourselves right with God. When if we truly understood the gospel, we would realize that we should be way past that point, And we are now freed up to be confident to live for God with reckless, joyful abandon. And it produces in people a confidence and a desire and a yearning to, to give all that they have to God. So we're going to talk about t- today. I hope it fires you up. I hope, hope you shadow box, hit somebody in the back of the head that you're sitting behind. And to do that, we're going we're gonna to look at one verse. We're going to narrow, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna constrain our attention to one really, 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 really beautiful, important mystifying verse and it's found in hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14 so um as you're flipping there let me um let me pray you guys ready to go all right okay let's pray lord thank you so much for for today that we can gather that we can that we can actually sing songs to you not go through the motions that we can actually sing and that we can open up the bible and we can look at it and that we can we can not feel the pressure just to get through 20 or 30 minutes of a little homily where some practical principles are applied, but where we can literally let the Bible, the truth of the Scriptures, run through us and tug on our hearts and chisel at us and, and move us and make us. And then we, can, then we can look to you and we can let your Spirit flow through us and we can be stirred and moved and and, and convicted and persuaded and influenced and motivated and encouraged. God, that is amazing. It's not just another Sunday morning in the Bible Belt. 
But it's a time when your people come and and lean forward into all that you have. So God, would you help us today? Would you center our attention on Christ and his cross and his resurrection and his spirit that fills us and empowers us and and gifts us and guides us and the Father who has who has lavished his love on us and accepted us. Would you do that in our hearts and would we leave this place if we're Christians motivated to live in a journey towards Christ likeness? And if we're not yet Christians in this room, God, would that become clear to us? For those that may fall into that category, and would God they today believe the good news of the gospel, and would it bring about repentance that leads to life? And would we all leave this place with great joy, great encouragement, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read that verse, and we're going to come back to it kind of over and over again, and then we're going to probably read a bunch of other verses. And um, if you haven't checked out our new website... I encourage you to do that. What we do is we post these messages, the audio of the message on the website by Monday afternoon, also with full notes of of the sermon. So um, if you're a note taker and you get kind of behind, you're like, oh, man, slow down. Don't worry about that. I I can't really slow down. I don't really have that gear. And so um, if you you haven't noticed, and so um, it'll all be the notes and everything will be posted. All the scriptures that we reference will be posted as a PDF file and also just on the Internet under our resources and sermon page so um, be sure to check that out roman hebrews 10 verse 14 and we're again we're parachuting down into the middle of a of a book and into the middle of a chapter that's saying some things that we don't have necessarily time to unpack today but hebrews if i could give you the the overarching message or conduct context of hebrews it is that this writer of hebrews we're not exactly sure who it is maybe paul if not him then definitely one of his ministry associates is writing this letter to a group of people who were formerly jewish uh jewish people who are still obviously ethnically jewish but they have now become christians they have believed in jesus as their messiah but yet they were these people of this great history to where they had this old testament law and they had all of the customs of judaism that they thought would bring about their right standing with god and now in the face of persecution from maybe a roman empire and in the face of persecution from some of their friends and family who were jews that did not uh, believe in jesus they're facing this pressure and they are at the the, the, the brink of maybe giving up on their newfound faith and turning back to their old way. And so the writer of Hebrews is coming along to encourage them and to say, no, the way of Christ, it is better than, it is true, it is right. In fact, the, the word better than, if you went through all of Hebrews, it just shows up over and over and over again. The way of Christ is more excellent, more better. I don't know if that's grammatically correct, but you get the impression, I don't think it is, but Christ, so he's saying, He's saying, hang in there with this commitment that you've made to Christ. And it is also the answer, if you ever have read the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament that talks about the sacrificial system and how people were made right, how their sins were atoned for in the Old Testament through the blood of animal sacrifice. One of the major, if not the major point of Hebrews is, is that now those sacrifices are no longer necessary because all throughout Hebrews, this sentence of once and for all, Christ has offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So let's read Hebrews 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected 
for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, let's just right out front engage the seeming sort of paradox of that verse. Do you see that? He is saying that that through Christ's work on the cross, single offering, we're going to talk about that in a second, he has past tense perfected those who are being sanctified. So that that's I mean about any moment Rod Sterling from the Twilight Zone could walk out from behind the curtain and you know like do 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 I mean that think that that's confusing. That's he has made perfect past tense cancer done. Those who he is in the process of making perfect. Ah, I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that just, I mean, doesn't that grab you? Okay, so what's going on there? First part of that sentence. For by a single offering, he has perfected. Listen, before you can grow in Christ, before you can, uh, before you can live in a free and way where you, are, where you are literally released to go after God without guilt, you have to understand what Christ has done for you on the cross. Go to Romans chapter 3. If you have a Bible, flip to the left. Romans is right after the Gospels and the book of Acts. Romans chapter 3. One of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. Romans 3, this is what it says. Now, again, we're, we're, we're parachuting down into a text. And what the overarching message of the book of Romans is basically, amongst, it's one of the most theological, probably the most theologically rich, doctrinally rich books in the Bible. And one of the principal themes of Romans is, is that Paul is first, in the first couple of chapters, he is outlining how how sinful and unworthy of grace all humanity is. He spends the first chapter talking about how every Gentile, which is most of us in this room, has, has turned against God, has rebelled against God, and is deserving of God's wrath. Then in chapter 2, he then focuses on the Jews who had God's law, who were God's people, and he says they have disobeyed it. And so he's building this case that nobody is worthy of God's grace or justification or heaven. And so he, he in this book, is answering the objection. In fact, the, probably the overarching theme of Romans is a defense of God for letting anybody into heaven. For, for, for rescuing anybody, whether they are Jew or Gentile. And so in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, um, he picks up. And by the way, just so you know, I have this, th- those two words, but now, in verse 21. Um, I just have those underlined, and I remember reading this a long time ago, that those two words, I referenced him last Sunday. This little guy called Martin Luther was the father of what we call Protestantism. Um, the Protestant Reformation, October 31st, 1517. Um, incredible story. We're going to talk about Luther and some of the church fathers. But he says that the whole Bible turns on these two words. Because the whole Bible up to this point has been how humanity is unworthy of God's grace. And then in verse 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God 
has been manifested apart from the law. Meaning now there is this fulfillment. Now there's this righteousness that comes not by whether or not we can be good little moral people that come to church and do acts of religious charity. There's some righteousness. What he's saying is there is now a righteousness apart, separate from human goodness. That is huge. That is huge. That is huge. He continues, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So he's saying this isn't new because this has been, this has been coming all along. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So he's saying now that right standing with God comes not by whether or not we are good moral people or whether we come to church or whether we occasionally give to charities or whether we don't cuss or whether we canceled HBO, which by the way you should all do, or whether or not we, we don't blow money on ridiculous things or whether or not we don't commit felonies or whether or not we are faithful in our marriage or don't cheat. Look, all of those things are great things to do, but they are not the things that you do that make you righteous with God. They are things that you do because you are righteous with God and you are righteous with God only because you have believed in Jesus. That is thrilling news. That means that we are no longer bound to being judged by good works and whether or not we can be good enough people because (laughs) here's the bad news. None of us would be good enough to be accepted by God in and of ourselves. But the good news is is that Christ became good enough for us, and now that grace comes through, that acceptance from God, that justification comes solely from belief in Him. In fact, during the first or second year of Crosspoint, we preached a message all the way through. We preached through the book of Galatians, and we said that the central theme of Galatians was this one little phrase which in just a second, you're either going to make me happy or you're going to make me really, really sad (laughs) because I'm going to repeat this phrase and hopefully you'll get it. I'm prepping you. I'm letting you. Come on, stir your memory banks because the, 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 the main point of Galatians is a distillation of this one book of Romans that, come on, get ready for me now if you were there, the five of you that were here the first year. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Yes, for the seven of you that had it. Thank you very much. So it's not Jesus plus good works, Jesus plus being water baptized, Jesus plus some spiritual gift, Jesus plus pretty regular, pretty regular church attendance, not Jesus plus giving to the offering, not Jesus plus going to Africa, not Jesus plus moral living, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. This does two things. At first, it sort of cuts against our grain. Like, we want to, like, I'm better than the other guy. I know for a fact I've been around longer than that person, and I know for a fact that I've done more than they have for God, and I know for a fact I don't have HBO. (laughs) And he does. Do you see what you're doing when you do that? You're making it kind of about you. And you can even be a Christian and think like that, 
And here's the whole point of today, is when you think like that, it wreaks havoc on your growth in Christ because you're still back here trying to prove yourself to God for acceptance when you should be way past that, being empowered by grace. Does that make sense? Okay, but I'm not even at the main point. I don't know. All right. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and all fall short of glory of the glory of God, whether it is a Jew or a Gentile or a good Bible Belt kid that grows up in Chattahoochee County, Valley, whatever, or somebody whose grandma founded First Baptist or Second Methodist or Third Presbyterian or Fourth, my dog is bigger than your dog, holy temple of the Most High God. It doesn't matter. Everybody, everyone. In here, in fact, we've said this often, let's just, let's just look at the grand spectrum of humanity. You've got Hitler and Mussolini and Osama bin Laden and Stalin over here is the most wicked of all humans. And over on this other spectrum, you have the perfect God-man Christ Jesus. And then you have maybe 50% here. We look, everybody is way, much, much closer to the despots and the wicked of humanity than we are to Christ. And so all all of us, and we don't think that because we're good little Americans. And um, we think we're, we think we deserve, that we do deserve, we deserve punishment and wrath. And that's the beauty of what continues on here. And he says, so for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus Listen to this. Now, this is so important. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. Incredibly important word. One of the reasons I like this newer version of the Bible, ESV, is because it it retains these theologically rich words that are very important for us to understand. And I'm going to unpack that here in just a second for you. It says that whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith this was to show god's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins let's stop there so what's going on here what's going on is paul is imagining the very the very uh, understandable objection of the jew and the gentile especially the jew who is saying wait a minute Wait, 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 these people, they've done whatever. I mean, they, they have sinned. They haven't even tried to live for the law. They haven't even tried to live for you. Yes, God, I have failed. Maybe I've been a sorry Christian, but at least I've been trying to live for you. And so what about this bum who just comes in off the street who hasn't even tried and now he can receive grace? Now he can have everything that I have as an inheritance as a Christian? I mean, that just seems categorically unfair. That's the objection. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. God has not just passed over human sin and acted like it. It wasn't like God was up there in heaven and saying... Oh, yes, they showed up. I'm just so glad that they're here that I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna shout grace and everything's okay. And so, you know, you're here. You showed up, Billy. You showed up, Johnny. You showed up, Susan. And you know, all of that sin that you accumulated in your life, ah, no big deal. What this verse is saying is, is that yes, in the past, he passed over those sins, but now, Those sins, 
the wrath and the justice of God that, 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 that those sins very justly deserved has been poured out not on us, but on Christ. And that's what this word propitiation means. It means that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for us. And he not only wiped us clean, took our sins away, but he absorbed the wrath of God for us. And so he satisfied God's justice and anger and holiness on the cross. Now, I know that we live in an incredibly anemic theological culture where all we want to do is get together and say, you know, God is good and he helps me on Tuesday. Or, you know, live your, this is how you can be more happy. And so when we come out across the most theologically rich portions of scripture like that, when we're like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. The preacher just talks above my head. (laughs) No. Don't you see how beautiful that is? That Christ, look, look, God is far more serious about your salvation and your sanctification than you can imagine. And you're not saved because you're at church. You're not saved because you're a good American. You're not saved because you helped an old lady across the street. You are saved because the wrath of God was barreling down the street at you. At you, American. At you. At me. And Christ on the cross absorbed, absorbed the death and the pain and the wrath of God that should have been ours. And by simple belief in Him, then that clears the slate. You are now free. You are now free from guilt. Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, now you are His. You are not the insecure little child wondering whether or not you have a father. And so now that frees you from silly religiosity and it frees you from this little game where you got to prove to God that you're accepted because if you understand propitiation you realize that that happened on the cross and that when you get that you know what that does it frees your soul and you know what one of the consequences of your soul being freed you have a better Tuesday You have your best life now because of the cross and the wrath-absorbing sacrifice of Jesus that turned the anger of God into the favor of God for all who believe. What a way to start your pursuit of Christ. Do Do you see how understanding that puts you in a position of confidence? And empowerment. Oh, do you see it? I'm getting a couple north-south. Some of you are like, oh, jeez. Okay, I'm just going to assume you get it. And I'm going to move on. All right. So for by a single offering, he has perfected. Christ has absorbed the wrath of God. It should have been yours. And now has turned it into the favor of God that is now yours. <laughs> 
And, and here's the even better news. He hasn't just made you clean. He hasn't just made you innocent. He hasn't just wiped away your sins. He has, and oh, this is, this could, we could spend weeks on this. He has, he has not only bore the brunt of our sins, he has given us his character. It's called the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It means that he has took our sin. The theologians call this the great exchange. It's a two-way street. That going one way on the street was our sin onto Christ, and going the other way on the street was his righteousness that now is ours. Check this out. This is, you gotta know this first. You just gotta memorize it. You gotta, you gotta underline this. You gotta put it, you gotta lipstick this bad boy on the mirror. You gotta do something with this verse. You gotta put it on your dashboard. You got you to do it. You gotta, this is a verse you've got to have right here. You've got to have this in your hip pocket. Am I making myself clear? Okay, good. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Check this out. This is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. For our sake. 2 Corinthians 5.21. We're still on that point of what Christ has done on the cross. For our sake, he made him. Now, this is God the Father talking about what he has done through God the Son. For our sake, he made him. He, God the Father, made Him, God the Son, to be sin for us. To be sin. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So Christ has lived a perfect life. He has accredited righteousness. He lived the life that we should have lived, but we, we did not live. And God made Him on the cross our sin. So take your worst deal. Take the worst deal that anybody's ever committed on this life. And Jesus literally, this is hard to think of, I know. But Jesus didn't just die for our sins, but he actually became our sin. Jesus became the despot. He became the wife-beating alcoholic. He became the pornographer and the pedophile and the murderer and the liar and the adulterer and the liar and the cheat and the stealer. He became sin, but he knew no sin. And then here's the second part of the sentence that's so important. So that in him... We might become the righteousness of God. So there's this great exchange. Christ gets our sin. We get his righteousness. That's why I've said it before. You know those silly little bumper stickers? I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. In fact, we will do a series here sometime at Crosspoint about bad bumper sticker theology. We're just going to title it that. I'm going to take a few. And we're just going gonna to break that down. And, and, then, and if you got this bumper sticker on your car, let me just apologize. Right off the bat, if you're a visitor and you got this bumper sticker on your car, we, I'm, I'm so glad we shared this one Sunday together because this was... <laughs> but that little, that little... And when you read this bumper sticker, you've got to say it in a wimpy voice because it's just a wimp. It's just a halfway... It's a 50-cent theology. You want, you want a dollar's worth of theology. You want 100% of this gig. And this is what this bumper sticker says. You, you, know what I'm, you know where I'm going. Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. Yes, you're forgiven, but you're not just forgiven. (laughs) If you were just forgiven, that would mean that you would be, look, as beautiful as that is, and I do not in my, just being silly, I don't want to downplay forgiveness, how beautiful that is. But if we're just forgiven, that means that we are now just sort of translated back to pre-fall. We're back in the garden And if we don't have now the character of Christ, we will screw it up again. 
In fact, we do every day, but when we're covered by Christ's blood, even our continual sin is now covered by the blood of Christ that dies for sins, not just past and present, but also future. And now our character is the character of Christ. And so how does this relate to spiritual growth? It relates to spiritual growth because now you are not trying to be accepted, but you are accepted and you are on the platform of acceptedness, which means forgiveness and righteousness. And on that platform, you now in freedom live for God. Do you see how understanding that is so crucial? Now you're not a debtor. Now you're not a beggar. Now you don't have your tail between your legs if you're a Christian saying, Well, I wonder if my little work today will be acceptable to God. No, you are still, of course we're humble, but we're saying, I am accepted. I have received the character of Christ. I am not just forgiven, but I have now been imputed. I've been given. I've been transferred Christ's life. And because the life of Christ, the Spirit of God lives in me, now I know that I can live. The way God intends me to live. I think understanding that is so critical. Guys, listen, this is important. This is how critical this doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the filling of his presence and spirit of life. It's why it's so important. And I, and I, I tell you, I, I've been very frank with some besetting lifelong sins that I have, that I have struggled with, not my whole life, but since... Puberty, and I think you know what sin I'm talking about. It's the sin that every young man goes through, the sin of lust. And, and until I understood this, look, I had been a Christian for a while and still felt like I was losing the battle to the sin. And not until I understood the beauty of what happened on the cross and therefore what is mine through faith did I understand that I was now free to have victory over this thing. That's why it's so important. Because some of you were talking about growth and you're like, yeah, I want to grow, but I just, oh man, if you just, if I could unpack what was really going on in my life. Look, I'm not just saying understanding this is just going to be the trick for you, but understanding this over the course of time and letting this beautiful truth get hammered into your heart will begin to free your soul. Do you get that? It's beautifully powerful and important. And it ties into our growth. That we have not only been forgiven, but we've been Made righteous in Christ. So, let's keep going in Hebrews. We'll be done here in just a second. For by a single offering, he has perfected. You guys got that part? All right, good. I don't don't have time for this one, but I'm just going to throw it out there because I think it's important. What are the next three words? Give them to me. For all time. I, I'm not one of those preachers that has you repeat stuff ever. I, I always thought that was silly, but I'm just feeling it. Give it to me one more time. Those next three words, for all time. Touch three people next to you and say, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Look, do you, for all time. Look, this is, we, we were big here on this. This is, this is. I make this point a lot, that we have a two-handed view of theology here. There are are things that you need to believe in order to be a Christian, that every Christian should believe, whether they're they're Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Baptist, Pentecostal, Charismatic, non-denominational, whatever, Orthodox Christianity. Then there's some 
doctrinal things here that I think are open for discussion that you don't have to believe. And when I touch on these issues, I will be clear to you that this is not like something you need to believe to be a Christian or need to believe to be a member of Crosspoint, but it's an open-handed issue that Christians can agree to disagree on, but this is where I stand on it. And this is one of those things that has just become to grip my soul. Like Christ has done this in my life for all time. That means, listen, listen, I have four kids, Joseph, Jacob, Arabella, and Abraham. They will never stop being my children. Right? They will never stop being my children. And I think that this verse says that what Christ has done for you, if it has truly happened in you, it will guarantee that for all time you are his. Now, we can go two ways with this. We can go two ways with this. Is that there's a denomination out there that says that this is once saved, always saved. I think that is a ridiculous phrase. I think that has wreaked damage on people's soul. Because I think it has brought about a false sense of security in people. But if you are truly a Christian, it's not to say that you will not have trouble with sin for the rest of your life. But it is to say that there's a force bigger than your will going on in your salvation. And it is the glory of God for His name's sake that will guarantee that even through the trials after salvation, for all time, He will bring those who are truly His back to Him, back to a place where they're living for Him so that they complete the race. I know whom I have believed, 2 Timothy 1.12. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him until that day. Philippians 1.6. Be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Here's what I'm arguing. I'm not arguing that you can just say, well, I'm a Christian. I responded to Christ on Thursday night of youth camp in 1993. And now I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. In fact, the Bible says that you're probably not a Christian. It says that when Christ seizes your soul and he works his salvation to the depths of your heart and mind and your soul, he makes his beauty altogether lovely and irresistible. So that you can't have a walk away from Not that you won't stumble, but that for all time. So you can go one way or the other. This can produce a false sense of assurance in your life that becomes a license for you to sin. And if that's you, read Romans 6. Because Paul says that if you think you can sin so that grace can abound in your life, you're not a Christian. But the other way it can work is a work of humble confidence in the life of the believer so that they know whom they have believed. And now I know, no matter what happens in my life, even if I fall off the stage, that Christ is mine and I am His. And He has perfected for all time. For all time. My soul. Again, you don't have to believe that. I'm a little passionate about it, but you don't have to believe that. (laughs) Last five words. Those who are being sanctified. Think about the, the schizophrenia of this verse. He has perfected, boom, done, happened, written, sealed, For all time, he has perfected us. Those who 
are being sanctified or made holy are still being perfected. See, here's, without that little phrase there, here's, here's what you can do. You can fall into that trap of false assurance. And you can say, oh, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh. Occasionally, I hand out bulletins at Crosspoint. Did you know that about me? I bought the donuts once. And now I got the juice card. No, he says that there's this, there's this process that proves that will truly identify whether or not you're really God's. And it is this process that we are all going through. We are, listen to this, this may be something you write down. Not that it's particularly profound, but I think it captures the truth. We are becoming, this is the heart of growth and sanctification and life in Christ. We are becoming what we already are. And, and now, the work of Christ on the cross, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God, the will of the Father that came your way and hit you and saved you, does not release you. It now empowers you with the responsibility that you have to live for Him in all areas of your life, whether it be financially, socially, sexually, maritally. Everything you do now is a response to Him because the rest of your life, if you truly know Christ, is not church attendance or trying to prove your salvation, but it is now freed up to live a life of continual, gradual, progressive, cooperative sanctification with God. I think the verse that, that brings these two truths together better than any verse in the New Testament is found in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to wrap it up pretty soon on this. Philippians 2, verse 12. Check this out. Philippians 2, verse 12. There, there's two seemingly contradictory truths butted up together in these two scriptures, and I love it because the Bible just rolls it out there and it says, deal with it. God is sovereign and you're responsible. That's what I love about it. Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, look, you've you got to give your heart to God. You've got you to roll up your sleeves. You've got to get your dirt underneath your fingernails. You've got to pray. You've got to sweat. You've got to read your Bible. You've got to repent of sin. You have to confess to a brother when you've wronged him. You've got you to do the hard stuff, man. You've got to serve. You've got to put your hands to the plow. You've got to pray that God would give you gifts and spiritual gifts. You've got to use those spiritual gifts. You have to overcome timidity. You have to obey God. You have to con- continually live this life of humble, confident humility where you are straining and struggling and striving to be all that Christ has already made you. So you are responsible What God has done does not release you from anything. In fact, it should empower you. And you've got to roll up your sleeves, man. There's no category in the New Testament for casual, nominal Christianity. There's no category for it. You can't just be a person who gives mental assent to the gospel and occasionally shows up. You've got to let your heart be opened up for the sake and the cause of the kingdom. You've got to give everything to Him. He demands total obedience from all of His children. And you've got to struggle with that. You've got to sweat tears. You've got you to get sore spiritual muscles. You've got you to labor. You've got to confess. You've got to repent. You've got to do the hard work of community. You've got to serve. You've got to have a, a moment where you realize that this world and God is not just about you, but it's about Him. And you've got to find your place in that orbit somewhere. You've got to do it, man. You've got to do it. 
because, verse 13, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you're standing on this platform of amazing grace that doesn't wonder whether or not his children are going to become like him. But it puts them on a platform of confidence, humble confidence to where they know that they're now free to live for him. I feel like we need to let that sink in our souls. I feel like we need to grab a hold of that. Because I feel like if we get into what we're going to get into in the next couple of weeks, we could subconsciously misinterpret it as do better. Do better. Do better. And that becomes moralism and religion unless we understand the roots, the work of the cross, and the empowering of the Spirit of God in our lives. I have no idea how this has hit you. Usually at this moment, I try and come up with some application. Maybe you're this, or maybe that, and I just, maybe by God's grace, my mind is totally blank, blank right now on how this might look in your life. And so I'm going to trust that God has spoken to our hearts and has put something on us that we respond to. In just a moment, the guys are going to come up and they're going to lead us in some worship. We are not in a rush. We need to press into this. You can't, you can't just deal with a weighty, all-important truth like this and just say, oh, yeah, that was great. When are we singing the doxology? Because I got, uh, and then just rock out of here. That's insanity. So they're going to come saying we're going to not get restless. If you need prayer, but do a little Philippians 2.12 on that bad boy. Come on, get prayed for. Work out your salvation. If you need to, come on, men, lead in worship. Lift your hands and say, God, stake the root of the gospel of grace deep in my heart so I no longer live as a debtor, but free me up to live with humble confidence and propel me into this life of eagerness towards you in my spiritual growth. And maybe that's your prayer right now. But men, you can't just sit there looking at your watch getting antsy because you don't know how to act in church. That's silliness. Come on. Come on. Maybe you need to receive communion and you need to remember the broken body of Jesus and the spilled blood of our Lord. And, and it would do your soul just good to come down and receive communion on your own. Do that. Press forward into God. Nothing's going on this afternoon. We don't start prayer until 430. Come on. Let's, let's, let's lean forward into this powerful truth. And let the God of the universe move our souls to humble confidence. Some of you, it may have become over the past 40 minutes very clear that you're not a Christian. What do you do? 
Well, if you're having that understanding right now, you're sensing that, I think that's very strong evidence that you are in the process of being born again. People that are beginning to understand that, I think that's an indicator that grace is hitting your heart. But see, you don't just become a Christian. I mean, it it never happens. The grace that saves us never becomes real in our life apart from faith. So now you must, in fact, you must respond. You must decide in your mind to repent of your sin, to turn away from self-reliance, and you must believe in what Christ did on the cross as the only the only sacrifice for your sins. You must Repent and believe. You must trust in Christ. You must realize that walking into this building, that you are not right with God, and now God in His graciousness is calling out to you. He's calling your name. You must respond to that. The Bible says to believe. To believe. To turn from self-reliance and to trust in Christ. Now what we want to do is we want to, we want to, you know, we want to, we want to have you come and and assign something or say some little prayer. But what happens when you do that, when you believe, something happens. Boom! Immediately, the sin that you have done in your life up to that moment is wiped away. And immediately at that moment, the Spirit of God comes and it indwells you and it empowers you. And now He is in you and you now are brought back to life. And if you need somebody to kind of walk you through, you need to just pray with somebody about that, do that. But believe, 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 believe. And go public with it. Come down. Talk to me. Talk to Reynolds. Talk to somebody. And we'll kind of give you some thought. Coach you through that. Say, hey, this is, this is what it looks like in your life. But if that's you, believe. Believe the gospel. Don't leave this room without figuring that out. Coming down, talking to somebody. We'll be here. Don't do it. Come on. This is not, this is not some area where we're checking each other out. Well, let's pray. Lord, as we... Respond, God, we need to understand the gospel. We need to understand what you have done. We need to understand that our sins have been removed, that you have absorbed the wrath of God. We need to understand that you have filled us with your spirit. We need to understand that we are children of God. We need to understand that we now are free. Not to prove ourselves again and again so that you would be appeased and not angry. But now we are free to pursue earnest, lifelong, totally comprehensive faith and trust in you. And so God, for the person in here that has minimized you, that has made this just a cultural deal, God, shake their soul. Just knock them off their horse, God. Do whatever you have to do to humble them and knock them down and let them see that they're helpless without you. And that there's no category for people who just give mental assent to you. But we have got to respond with everything in our lives. Not out of a desire to prove ourselves to you, but because when we truly respond and believe the gospel, we are free. We are free. We are free to grow. God, do this, I pray. Blow through this room with your powerful spirit and shake us. The Christians encourage us and motivate us and release us from a debtor's ethic. The person who's not a Christian in here, God, 
I pray, as First Peter says, would you cause them to be born again by the living and abiding word of God? And then for that person, would they respond in belief and trust? And would you fill them with your spirit? And would they just have the courage to come talk to somebody, me or Reynolds or Will or Don McKelvey, some folks down here that will be praying? And just say, I'm not sure I know where I am with God. Can you help me? Can you help me? I think I might be believing in Christ right now for the first time. God, let that happen in their life. And now, God, let us respond to you. Let us not be antsy or nervous, but let us respond to you in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.